Hi everyone, this is Andrew Davies from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers. Today we are joined by Michael Long and Carrie Hoffman. Michael is a professor in the Neuroscience Institute at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine, and Carrie is an associate professor in the Psychological Sciences at Vanderbilt University. They recently presented their work investigating the neural mechanisms of learning, memory, and behavior using high-density silicon probes from diagnostic biochips in small and large animals. Let's dive in. Let's kick off here perhaps with a a question about the use of the the probes in zebra finches. Have you been able to use these probes in zebra finches? You indicated that these probes can be used in any animal, and it seems that finches would have complications that another type of mouse, for example, might not, such as flight and skull thickness. Perhaps, Michael, maybe you could attack that one for us. Sure. So uh, thanks for the question. We have indeed used these in zebra finches. There's a paper that came out in December last year, and I can actually forward that uh, to Andrew, and he can be more interested in the details with that. But And these were absolutely DBC probes that were made to be lightweight so that they were minimally invasive for the birds. They sing happily within tens of minutes of, of an implant. And it's true that if, if they sing, they're happy, and unless they sing, we don't get data. So uh, the, the beauty about having something that's so light and so streamlined and so friendly to small animals, it really made our job easy. Wonderful. Moving on to another question. Thanks for the great response, Michael. I suppose this is for a bit for everyone. How do you handle noise in recording resulting from animal movement? It's always a, an issue. Well, I'll jump in with the wireless. Uh, the noise sources can be different, but one of the things that we've done with these probes is using different reference and ground selection channels. And then again, shout out to John Wolf, who has a similar setup. And then we've been using for that reference, so connecting to the intracranial, the reference part, and then scroll through for ground. Fortunately, like knock on wood, our wireless recordings with the Neuralink billing system are surprisingly low noise. And we sometimes find that the extra equipment involved in our rig setup with the intent is sometimes even noisier than the wireless recordings, actually. So, yeah, I guess answers separating out reference and ground can be helpful, and having a deep reference can also be helpful in our hands. Wonderful. We do have a question about uh, implantation techniques. I'm not sure if we have the time to get into that. Perhaps a future webinar. Any of you have any comments about the peculiarities of implantation very briefly? So why don't I do a quick and then the other extremes. So I would just say that, that we were surprised, pleasantly surprised. We can penetrate fresh dura with the monkey without any extra dural puncture or dissection or incision. And so we just use the electrodes there to penetrate dura, and then we seal it with a silicon, um, different grades of silicon elastomer to make sure that, that it's sealed after implant. Michael, I don't know if you wanted to add. Yeah, different different animals have different challenges, but that's roughly the, the way that we do it too. Yeah, very well put. Great. Thank you both. How was your experience recording animals in a semi-natural environment, and were there any unusual neural patterns? And are you planning to compare activity from restrained and freely moving animals? That may be directed at you, Carrie, but I'm not 100% sure. Oh, I assumed it was Michael. Oh, Perhaps, okay. Yeah. So, 
So we the the in the really moving compared to restrained, we haven't seen as many differences as I expected. What we thought was the theta oscillation, which is so prevalent in the hippocampus of the rodent, would suddenly appear in the macaque, and, and it didn't. So it is, seems to be the case in humans and macaques that regardless of walking around and, or free movement or not, that theta oscillation is something that happens as animals sleepy, and that it's much more likely to see high frequencies when they're moving. So it's kind of a negative result, but it was an important one because we needed to actually measure both restrained and moving conditions to recognize that difference. Great. Did you have anything to add to that, Michael? We, again, a happy animal is a vocalizing animal. And so I think, you know, in terms of, of restraint, different experiments call for different things. But for the most part, they're hopping around their environment, flying, singing, doing whatever. And, and I think I was very interested to hear Carrie's view on this, because I think there's been some controversy in the, the Campbell field about people have, have done up to this point, which is using really high density electrodes and putting the animal in a virtual environment. And so basically bringing the environment to them in a kind of closed loop, put them on a, on a, on a wheel and have that move the environment as if they're playing a video game, if you like. And there has not been an enormous amount of agreement, at least from my kind of vantage point, which is not in the front row like Carrie is, but concerning whether or not that actually recapitulates uh, what's going on in the natural navigating animal. And clearly one thing that, that is a problem with head-fixed animals is the fact that they're not getting any vestibular inputs, right? So that's something that I think is really exciting about Carrie's work is that not only visual flow, but vestibular inputs and, and all other environmental cues. It's really exciting what she's doing. It's a treat to hear about it. Great. Thank you. Thank you both. Great answers. There's two questions I think we can clump together here. I think we'll make them the last just in the interests of time. The first question is, what is your opinion on rigid probes? Do you notice any brain damage due to the rigidness of the probe? And another question I think is related. Have you checked the stability of the recording and have you established whether you recorded the same neurons over time? So I suppose tied together in terms of electrode placement after the experiment and also damage, any damage due to placement. I'll answer quickly and then give way to Carrie's answer, which I think is going to be much more relevant. I would say I have colleagues up at Columbia in the Axel lab that are recording for two months, and they've really shown, I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, that they are recording the same neurons for, for the period that exceeds 28 days, for example. And this was a paper that came out last year in Nature, uh, Schoenover and, and Axel, with looking at, I think in terms of stiffness, yeah, there, you were actually talking about this exact issue right before this event, and that is, you know, there's something about being floppy that is really forgiving, and the brain bounces around all the time, and, and that same floppiness makes it hard to really enter the brain in a, in a clear way. And so uh, we were trying to imagine a way that could actually hit the button and adjust stiffness stiff going in and then allow it to be more forgiving once it's actually in the brain. So if anyone of you 55 that are still around uh, have fantastic ideas, I'm sure Carrie and I would be all ears. This is relevant as of an hour and seven minutes ago. Carrie? Yes. In principle, that is where things need to go. Somehow we need to have the maximal uh, compliance with brain tissue. In practice, yet to see the probes, and I've used a number of them, including flexible ones, that can get the yields over time. And so we need to be able to drive after the fact. We need the ability to adjust mm -hmm. afterward. And that adjustment means some degree of rigidity. So the compromise in having electrodes that are fine enough that they're still somewhat bendy, but they're drivable. 
And right now, in my assessment, that's the sweet spot for being able to get units and yields that are fairly stable over time, over days, if not weeks, and continued responses count on recognizing that ultimately will do less damage and we have hopefully potentially better yields if we could manage to get the truly flexible. In the meantime, I'll be recording my population responses. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.